Point Peachtree City family, along with those of you who may be joining in with us from elsewhere. Thanks for bringing the church into this video stream, as I've said for a few weeks now. If we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors of our church, the guy who gets the privilege most weeks of unpacking the scriptures as we come together. Speaking of the scriptures, we're currently working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, a book filled with paradox, comfort and affliction. Paul talks about richness and poverty, strength and weakness, much of which we've seen up to this point in this series. A book that speaks to our struggles with present uncertainty as Paul glories in the trustworthiness and certainty of our future in Jesus Christ. A book that speaks to our propensity to hide our our weaknesses and struggles as Paul helps us to see God's power made perfect in weakness. A book that speaks to the honor and privilege we've been given as ambassadors for Jesus, entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation in him. A book that speaks to the beauty of radical generosity, as we'll see this morning, fueled by God's radical generosity to us in Christ. We're talking about a book, as I've said before, that's highly theological in its expressions of some of the deepest truths in all of Scripture, a book that's highly doxological in invoking worship and praise of the God it reveals, and a book that's highly practical in helping us to see the appropriate response to God and his work of redemption in our very lives. And what that means is that we should come to God's word this morning, all of us, expecting him to move in our minds, expecting him to move in our hearts, expecting him to move in our wills, that he might be all the more glorified in us as we find ourselves all the more satisfied in him. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be in the first 15 verses of that chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't possess a Bible, I would encourage you to go to esv.org. It's a free resource. You can go there and track with the translation that we'll be using this morning, word for word, verbatim. It should take you a matter of seconds to to access that website and kind of track with us this morning. As the rest of you are opening up your Bibles, let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump in and get to work. Father in heaven, we, we come to you needy this morning as we come to you needy each and every day, asking you to move in power as we sit under your inspired word. We invite you to, to transform our minds. We invite you to transform our hearts. We invite you to conform our wills to your will. We invite you to overwhelm us with the riches of your grace that you might be all the more glorified in us as we find ourselves all the more satisfied in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This follow-up letter to the church in Corinth that we've been in now, I guess you could say for five months, but sort of for two months, depending on how you interpret this whole COVID-19 rest stop that we've taken before jumping back on board this Second Corinthians train. This is a three-part letter. The first part, focusing on Paul's defense of his apostolic authority, chapters one through seven. The second part, focusing on sacrificial generosity as an outworking of gospel-formed repentance, chapters eight through nine. The third part, focusing on Paul's call to the rebellious minority to repent while they still have time, chapters 10 through 13. So that if this were a Netflix series, last week would have marked the end of season one. 
Coming to a close with Paul's declaration of confidence in the gospel's impact on the church in Corinth, a confidence in the genuineness of their faith going back to last week. This morning marks the beginning of season two, a season with far fewer episodes, but no less rousing in content. Picking up in chapter eight, verse one, Paul says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Having expressed his confidence in the gospel's impact on the church in Corinth, Paul now directs his attention to the matter of the money he hopes to collect for another church, namely the church in Jerusalem, something that Paul had originally brought before the Corinthian church a year prior to the writing of this very letter in the prequel, so that if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, we're told, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. The church in Jerusalem was incredibly poor, made up predominantly of converted Jews so that Paul saw an opportunity for predominantly Gentile churches to support the church in Jerusalem, which would have gone a long way in putting unity and love on display for the watching world. He had previously called the church in Corinth to respond generously, but a lot had happened in, in the year following that very call to action. The fallout between Paul and many in the church in Corinth over the span of that year, which we've looked at up to this point in this letter, it likely pushed any sort of Corinthian thoughts for concern uh, for those in Jerusalem to the peripheral edges of their minds. So that Paul reminds them, in light of his newfound confidence in them, of the Jerusalem church's need, calling them to respond generously, to respond sacrificially, presenting those in Macedonia as an example. Macedonia being the province, including the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. If you were around for the Acts series that we did a couple years ago, we, we walked through the planting of those churches, their histories. Churches that Paul had planted on his second missionary journey as he continued to share and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that, according to these verses, has the power to fill human hearts with abundant joy, the kind of joy that would compel those with very little to give very much. That for those in Macedonia, we're told, beyond their means, extreme poverty overflowing in a wealth of generosity. Not guilt or shame motivated, 
but abundant joy motivated, of their own volition, Paul says. And, and not just that, but begging, begging to play a part in helping the saints in Jerusalem. But not just begging, Paul says, begging earnestly. Please, Paul, please let us give beyond our means. Please let us give out of our extreme poverty. We've devoted ourselves to the Lord, and we've concluded that our possessions, even our very own lives, belong to King Jesus. In the words of the early church father, John Chrysostom, as he marveled at verse 4, he once said, they did the begging, not Paul. He was baffled. Sam Storms, in his commentary on these verses, he says, something had happened in the hearts of these people that runs counter to all common sense and cross-grained to every fleshly impulse of self-preservation. It is as if the fast-flowing current in their souls had not simply been diverted, but reversed. Something suprahuman, he says, had inverted their values, turning their thinking on its head and their behavior topsy-turvy. We'll talk about that, quote-unquote, something superhuman in, in just a moment as we close out our time together with verses 8 and 9, the beautiful and wondrous centerpiece of this passage of Scripture. But before we do that, let's skip ahead for a second to, to verse 10. Look at what Paul says. He says, And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your com completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, the church in Jerusalem, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, Paul says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul didn't go about coercing people to give what they didn't have what they couldn't afford. That wasn't his MO. Though at times the gospel compels people to do just that, like those brothers and sisters in Macedonia. Rather, Paul's MO was imploring the saints to embrace their part. It's what he called the people in Corinth to do in meeting the desperate need of Jesus's people in the Jerusalem church. Something that he helps to make sense of in verse 15 as he quotes Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. That's a reference to God's providing of manna in the wilderness in the story of the Exodus. As the story goes, many of you are very familiar with this story. The wilderness wandering Israelites were, were not to hoard the good gifts of God as God daily provided to meet all of their needs between the time of their liberation from Egypt and their entrance into the promised land. The apostle Paul sees those in the churches that he He's planted as being part of a, a second exodus, you might say. Liberated not from Egyptian enslavement, but the enslaving chains of Satan, sin, and death. The new wilderness wandering generation on pilgrimage to the celestial city, you might say. Given the beautiful opportunity to provide for the needs of fellow saints on that journey to glory. Which is why Paul declares, right in the heart of this morning's message, 
We've looked at the bread. Now we get to the meat in verses eight and nine, this liberating work of Jesus Christ, the the greatest motivation in all of the universe for sacrificial giving. Look at verse eight. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Famous verse, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Notice that Paul doesn't jump to the tithing principle nor does he ride the coattails of the easily accessible motivators of guilt and shame like many church leaders oftentimes do. Rather, he simply reminds the saints in Corinth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the motivation we need to stir our hearts to sacrifice for the needs of others. Let me say it this way. Jesus didn't give a tenth of himself. Jesus gave all of himself for you and for me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, as Paul says elsewhere in scripture, he was in the form of God, eternal, timeless, self-existent, self-sufficient, involved in this eternal intra-Trinitarian dance with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. As John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The father's agent in the work of creation, the king of all creation, became poor, Paul says. As he says elsewhere, Philippians 2, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That the king himself took on the form of a peasant as an act of sacrificial love, setting aside the privilege of divine glory. And not simply in order to to wash a few feet and show us the way of love. Far more to this entrance of the author into his own story. The gospel accounts, they're an emphatic declaration that Jesus came to die He was born to die, and not just any death, but a humiliating death by crucifixion. Notice what Paul says, and this is so key to the gospel, yet for your sake, he became poor. Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Us, the word for, so key to the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus stepping into our place, dying the sinner's death that we deserve to die. 1 Peter 3.18 says it this way, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, for your sake, that he might bring us to God. We sing it often. In our place, condemned, he stood, sealing our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior, what a king. So that, Paul says, you and I, by his poverty, might become rich. If you're a Christian, I don't care what's in your bank account, you're wealthy. You've been saved from wrath, 
You've been declared righteous before God, cleansed from sin, freed from chains, reconciled to the creator, forever blessed, a child of the living God, heaven and heaven's king, your inheritance. If you're not a Christian, let me say it this way. You're forsaking the greatest riches in all of the universe, including the great treasure of the triune God himself, so that I would invite you to, to turn to Jesus, to put your faith, put your trust in Jesus, who the Bible says, for your sake, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I invite you to cry out to him as savior, to cry out to him as king this morning, to join the many heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, as Paul says elsewhere, as a recipient of God's grace. And if you are a Christian, my goodness, does the gospel not bring us face to face with radical generosity like the world has never known as, as recipients of so many blessings in Jesus? Let, let me just, for a moment, and, and try to stay focused in, because this passage is a little longer than we might be inclined to look at in, in one chunk. But, but let me just read aloud one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture that speaks to the wonder of the blessings that are ours in Jesus. Namely, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. I could stop right there and we'd have every reason to shout the heartiest of hallelujahs. And yet Paul keeps going. He goes on to say, in him, we have redemption through his blood. There's the liberation language, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, Paul goes on to say, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, and that includes you and me, Christian, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." I mean, what more motivation do we need, could we possibly need, in compelling us to give to the needs of others than the riches of God's grace that have been lavished upon us in Jesus Christ? To go into the realm of narrative, it's the story of Zacchaeus, a thieving tax collector who came face to face with the grace of God in the face of Jesus. What did he do in response to such grace? He gave away half of his possessions to the poor. 
And then he stewarded the other half, the remaining half, to pay back those whom he had defrauded four times the amount he took from them. That's what the gospel does. Kent Hughes says in his commentary, by grace, speaking of Zacchaeus, the little man had become immense. Acceptance by God had given the tax collector what he had vainly sought in the accumulation of wealth, namely wholeness and satisfaction. He went in mastered by the passion to get. He left mastered by the passion to give. Something had happened, Hughes says, inside that house with Jesus. The more we soak in the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of the good news of the self-giving Jesus, the more motivated we will be to care for those in need. Salvation has come to my house. How, how can I not be generous? As the Macedonians gave out of their poverty, so we give out of our affluence, perhaps even our diminishing affluence in the midst of a pandemic. And we do so because of grace, sheer grace. John 1, 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. John Piper says, grace comes down, joy rises up, and generosity flows out. That's just good gospel-centered economics. Coming back to those Macedonian churches in the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, here's what the book of Acts tells us about the advancement of the gospel in those areas. You go back and read the book of Acts. The core group in Philippi, the first Christian church on European soil, it was made up of a a religious rich lady and her friends, a recently demon-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar jailer. How's that for the grace of God? In Thessalonica, Acts 17.4, it was a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. In Berea, Acts chapter 17, verse 12, it was a crowd of noble Jews with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. I mean, how could those in Macedonia not have their hearts filled with abundant joy? If they wanted to be reminded of the lavish grace of God, all they had to do was open their eyes. Right in front of them was a grace big enough to rescue the religious and content. Right in front of them was a grace big enough to rescue the tormented and enslaved. Right in front of them was a grace big enough to rescue the hopeless and despairing. Jews and Greeks, men and women, those of high standing and those of lowly stature. God's grace knows no bounds. It's that kind of grace that Paul says, has the power to make hearts full, spilling over into sacrificial generosity for the glory of the king. So that would ask you this morning, if the gospel has so captured your heart that you find yourself earnestly begging for suggestions as to how you might leverage what you have to care for those in need, I'll offer just a few possibilities specific to this unique moment in which we find ourselves. For one, You can go to acts29.com backslash give. That's our church planting network. If you go to that page, you'll see numerous opportunities and initiatives, some of which are uniquely intertwined with this COVID-19 reality. We have churches 
uh, that are in inner city impoverished areas that are struggling to remain planted and rooted in their context because of economic challenges. We have churches in rural areas that are lowly populated with many of low income as part of their demographic that are struggling to stay afloat right now. You can go to that page and you can find many opportunities to engage in the planting of the gospel all over the world. Secondly, you can go to our church's website and you can engage in the benevolence fund that we created roughly a month ago. That fund is intended for both community initiatives and uh, benevolent needs within our church family. Just so you know, we are now on the other side of having received requests uh, for those who are suffering economic hardship in our own church family. There's opportunity there to engage that by giving to that fund. Thirdly, you can simply start to or continue to give of your tithes and offerings. Um, I, I bring that one up simply because we give 10% of what you give to gospel-centered church plants so that there is a plant in Orlando, Spanish-speaking church that we currently support right now that is fighting to stay afloat in the midst of this pandemic. We have a planter on the ground in Jupiter, Florida, who is only a couple of years in, still very much trying to become self-sustaining in the midst of a pandemic. We're supporting a planter over in Gadsden, Alabama, uh, that is literally months into launching. We've been in partnership with a church in Budrio, Italy, along the way. Just by giving of your tithes and offerings, you're supporting church plants like that that are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then lastly, and this is a little bit more organic, there's the opportunity to provide direct care and provision for those that you see having needs around you as you listen in on conversations, as you sit in on community group dialogues and, and hear of what's going on with, with other brothers and sisters around you, those in the community. There's opportunity to to lean in in that organic sense to, to help to meet those needs as you see fit, where you see opportunity. And speaking of opportunity, let me close with this. The church doesn't need more opportunities, honestly. The church needs more beggars, more hearts captivated by the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ, begging earnestly like the Macedonian churches for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints and the advancement of the gospel. This is my prayer for us. May we be known as the begging church in the months and years to come, the church known as one willing to spend and be spent for the glory of God and the good of other people. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship together. In a couple of ways, we'll continue to sing to this great, glorious, and gracious God who has lavished his grace upon us in Christ. I invite you to, to sing with us. I, I heard uh, in a podcast earlier this week that uh, one of the challenges for us as embodied beings is not just the challenge of communicating via a 2D sort of digital platform, but also that we were made for agency. We were made to kind of move and... and uh, and have a mobility about us. And so one of the suggestions was to actually church, when, when it's time to sing as we come together, sing. Even if it feels strange in your living room, sing because it's your body engaging in worship. I invite you to do that this morning.
As a reminder, we're not gonna receive communion as we continue in this digital-only reality, but I would invite you to pause at some point over the course of these next couple songs for a moment just to soak in the riches of who God is for you in Jesus Christ, what Jesus came to accomplish for you. Come back to to verse nine and sit with that and, and allow the wonder of the gospel to wash over you yet again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich.